each time someone doesn't know what to work on or works on something that like clearly not aligned, I ask myself, what is the bug in the system that I should go fix? I'm an engineer. This is how I think. And the bug in the system is always something related to what I did to set context. This comes back to my beliefs around micromanagement. I think anytime you're telling someone what to do, you're not actually solving the bug. You're doing really bad patch and taking on more tech debt or whatever. Instead, you have to think about what are the system level things I should do differently so that misaligned decision doesn't happen. Welcome to In-Depth a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth Podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Siddharth Kakar, founder and CEO of Subscript, a subscription intelligence platform that empowers B2B SaaS leaders to easily dive deep into their subscription metrics and better understand their revenue. This is a problem that Siddharth understands deeply. Previously, he was the founder, CEO, and as he puts it, the de facto CFO of Freckle, an education platform. While his startup grew to serve 10 million students and was acquired by Renaissance Learning in 2019, he felt this data pain point for finance leaders firsthand, and thus got the idea for Subscript. But he had more takeaways than just the idea for his next startup. Siddharth says he learned a lot from building Freckle, particularly when it comes to company culture and management. That's what we dive into in today's conversation. Ever since First Round invested in Subscript Seed Round in 2020, I've gotten to see firsthand how thoughtful and unique of an approach Siddharth is taking. Right from the start, he knew he wanted to build Subscript to be global, distributed, and asynchronous. That's why there are no internal company meetings. Interestingly, everyone on the team operates autonomously, deciding what to work on for themselves. In this episode, we dive into both the philosophy behind this approach and the nitty-gritty details of how exactly it works in practice. From a tactical look at how they run company updates asynchronously every week, to a window into how they approach goal-setting and performance feedback, There are tons of unconventional strategies here. I also really loved all the details he shared around transparency and documentation at Subscript, such as how they maintain a running product market fit journal. We also dig into their hiring process and how they specifically assess asynchronous communication skills. Finally, Siddharth shares more of his thoughts on how leaders can avoid micromanaging. He also opens up about what his own schedule looks like as a founder in this type of environment. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Siddharth has a really unique perspective, and I think there's tons of food for thought in here. Whether you're a founder thinking about shaping your company culture or a manager looking for some fresh ideas. And now my conversation with Siddharth. So I'd love to maybe start by zooming out and having you share a little bit about the Subscript founding story. 
Yeah. Subscript came out of my last company in a sense. I made a lot of mistakes running that company. Apologies to everyone who had to work for me. And one of those mistakes was I didn't hire a finance team really at any point. And then eventually when I started thinking about it, we ended up getting acquired. That meant that I was de facto CFO. Apologies again to everyone who had to experience the other side of that. But as a result, I ended up doing all the things that you want a great finance leader to do. Well, I did them poorly, but I tried doing them specifically around using financial data and information and collecting your subscription information to make really good decisions. And I'm a pretty data-oriented person. My team was a pretty data-oriented team, but we were sort of very starved for high-quality information and data to make the decisions off of. It felt like this big lost opportunity, a source of unforced errors in that the data existed. We just couldn't get it collected and processed fast enough. And so we tried the usual path of having lots of people work on it and having them spend a lot of time in spreadsheets doing really manual stuff, stuff that was honestly way below their skill set. And of course, that leads to happiness for no one. And so that pain is what led me to think about, well, do other people experience this problem? And the answer turned out to be a resounding yes. And then is the problem even solvable? We think it is. And we've been working on it for a little bit. And then how do you go about actually making this much, much, much easier for finance teams, leadership teams, and CEOs for others who are doing the thing that I did, which is playing de facto CFO themselves. So that's where Subscript came from. And now we help finance leaders at subscription companies get a much better handle on their data, get a much better handle on what's going on in the business, and be able to actually advise their counterparts in sales or success or even product and engineering on what's working, what isn't working, and down to the sometimes even like deal level discount decisions all the way to prioritizing a particular segment versus another to thinking about the ICP. All of those things are things that we help with. So given this was your second company, how did you think about what are the pieces of your experience building Freckle from either a way that you worked, culture, people, all of the component parts? What are the pieces that you wanted to bring over when you started again versus wanted to rebuild? It's funny. So after Freckle was acquired, I I spent a bunch of time putting together this 35-page doc that no one but me has seen. And it's just like this brain dump of everything that I can think of that I learned. And there's lessons that span everything from how to be a better leader, to how to be a better manager, to how to prioritize product better, to how to hire better, um, to how to make tough decisions, all the way to how to build a culture that does all of these things and grows and how to transition from the various stages of what the CEO job is. And so first there was the product and the space and the idea around Subscript. And then there's the company building side of things. And on the company building side of things, I spent a lot of time sort of re-reviewing all of those things. So Subscript is very much a reflection of all the things that I've learned, but also in a way that year six of running Freckle is a reflection of the first five years. And so can you talk about some of those key learnings and how it applied specifically maybe to the people and culture piece of Subscript? Yeah. Some things that are different from ground up are Subscript is a totally remote culture. Freckle made that transition. So Freckle started out as a San Francisco only based team and in the office five days a week. And it transitioned eventually to a 
hybrid. There's the San Francisco team and then the rest of the U.S. team. We had only a couple of members outside the U.S., so largely it was in the U.S., I personally went from a person who believed, oh, you have to be, all be in an office and you want everyone to be together. And now I'm very much on the other end of the spectrum. I fully embrace the full remote. But then we started thinking a little bit more about, okay, so if you're going to go fully remote, the next thing you could do is not have to have everyone work at the same times because that allows everyone to do things in their own way. And I personally find this quite a bit where there's just times of the day where I am much less productive than other times in the day. One of our earliest engineers, Brandon, likes to dance after lunch. And so he just spends a bunch of time dancing and then he comes back to work refreshed and in a much better place. And that's what you want, right? You don't want people sitting in front of their computer when they're not going to be able to be productive. So that was the second part we layered on. Well, you can work anytime you want because we want you to work when you're most productive. But then you have this question of how do you do meetings? And so the next step was, let's just not do them. So let's get rid of meetings. And so Subscript is a zero meetings culture, which means that we have zero internal meetings. The only exception to that is meetings for fun. So we'll do like board games together, or team fun activities together, but that is it. Zero other kinds of meetings. And then if you're doing zero meetings, then you sort of go, okay, well, do you have to keep everyone in the US? And you have this realization you don't because the person working in Asia no longer needs to wake up in the middle of the night to come to an all hands anymore. And so we went fully globally remote. And so now we have this culture that has fully globally remote and has no meetings and everyone can work whenever they want. I can get into a bit more about my opinions on micromanagement later, but there's this very full autonomy culture then layered on top of it. Because if you have people working whenever they want, that means that other people who, if they need someone else to make a decision for them, is probably not working when they're working. So we've emphasized that everyone gets to make their own decisions as a result of that. And so from that follows, well, if everyone can make their own decisions, then you have to make sure that you're hiring people who are going to be able to make those decisions. And so that changes our hiring philosophy a decent bit. And then if you're going to hire people who can make their own decisions and empower them to make their own decisions, well, then you have to make sure that they have all the context they need. Because in a traditional organization, often the reason people aren't allowed to make the decisions is because they don't know all the things they need to know. And so then we go really hard on the context side of it. But that means now you have to have a large amount of transparency. And so as a result, we have an extremely transparent culture where everyone can know everything. And so all of these pillars follow each other. And what's really nice is when you're starting out a new company and you've kind of done this before, you can look at that story and you can see how all those pillars follow each other. And so from day zero, all these things were true about Subscript. What was your process in landing on this? What was sort of the reflection process, I guess, of looking back at Freckle and figuring out the bits that worked and maybe the bits that could be improved? There was a lot of my own evolution as a CEO at Freckle. Being a first-time founder CEO, it's a very tough gig. I really empathize with everyone doing it because there's so much you need to learn. And at the same time, you have to like be certain enough in it and confident enough in it to like rally a bunch of people around it, whether it's your customers or your investors or your employees. But at the same time, experience has value and you don't have it. And so you kind of have to like 
grope around in the dark a little bit and try to find the right things to go after or the right beliefs to have almost. Then there's the fact that there's multiple right answers. I have just landed on an answer that's right for me for now, right? I will continue to evolve. But there's people who believe the exact opposite of me and many of them are much smarter than me. And I don't think one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And so there's multiple answers. That means there's multiple sites of advice and you kind of have to sort through it. And for me, that meant there was a whole lot of evolution that happened in the six years that I was building Freckles as an independent company. And even in the year and a half where I was building it within my acquirer. And one of those ways that I evolved quite a bit was how I manage people. So I started out in a, the way a lot of people start out as managers, which is as fairly micromanagey. I didn't call myself that at that point. If you had asked me if I'm fairly micromanagey, I would have scoffed and said, absolutely not. But in reflection, I did a lot of things that I would now consider quite micromanagey. I do now use this term way too liberally, though, and I will call almost everything micromanagement. So like to take an extreme example, our engineering team doesn't do a traditional stand up, you know, one where it says like, what did you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And do you have any blockers? I only find one of those questions helpful. I find the first two to be quite micromanagey. And so we only talk about blockers, but there's no like, what did you do yesterday? And why didn't you do more? Are you doing it? Like, we don't do any of that type of stuff. There's very minimal benefits to micromanaging people, but there's quite a lot of downside to it. So that's one example of a thing I learned that played heavily into the autonomy-based culture that we're building. When you reflected on what was working or what didn't, Did you spend time contemplating the idea of, did this thing work because of the thing that I did or in spite of the thing that I did? When you think about very complex organisms like startups, I think that is one thing that is underappreciated in the sense that a founder chooses to have no managers for the first four years of the company. And so the head of engineering had 65 direct reports and the company was successful. And so it's easy to say, okay, the next time I build a company, I'm having no managers until five years in. And maybe the company was actually successful in spite of that philosophy. Do you meditate on that in any ways you thought about what you want to do in this new company in terms of how you operate and behave? I feel like you constantly relearn this idea that life is almost always very nuanced and one way or the other answer is usually wrong. And it's funny because I still, though, in this case, have a not perhaps as nuanced as it should be type of answer. I think that the primary determinant in success of a startup, more than pretty much everything else, is the strength of the initial product market fit. I think everything else improves or takes away from that. But I don't know, like product market fit really does seem to solve everything. And I'm sure we all have come across companies that seemed and sounded extremely poorly run and the companies still end up being super successful. And I just feel like product market fit solves a lot and can hide a lot. So as I approach this, I very much have the belief that the level and quality of the product market fit you have ends up being primary. And then everything else is a little bit of what kind of culture do you want to work in? It's one of the nicest things about being a founder. You get to work in the kind of company you want to work in because you made it. My biggest recommendation would be pick a coherent set of things. There's a lot of answers to this, but it definitely helps to have coherence here. 
If you have a set of philosophies that are a bit of this and a bit of that, if you try to do what we do with the no meetings thing, but then you're in different time zones or whatever, you're going to start defaulting back to meetings. You're going to be like, oh, why isn't this working? Do you think that the choice that you made in terms of async, remote, et cetera, will increase the likelihood that you get to really strong product market fit or to the point that you just made, it's just more your own working style and preferences? So I think yes, but I will say that I am not super confident in this opinion. I could easily be convinced that there's advantages to helping get to product market fit and other style. The reason that I think yes for this style is, for example, in our product market fit journey, there's no pretending anything in our company. This is a thing that founders or leaders often do where the real truth, the real unvarnished truth sits amongst them. And then they think about like, oh, how do I massage this message to the rest of the company? There's none of that at Subscript because everything is public. So everyone gets the full unvarnished truth. And what's amazing about that is everyone's always afraid of, well, what will people think if they realize that on the product market fit survey, we're currently only at like a 30%, will they lose heart or whatever? I just think that if you treat people like adults, they'll act like adults. And if you don't treat them like adults, well, you're going to get what you asked for. And so we have this culture of everyone knows exactly where in our product market fit journey. Everyone knows all the things that are positive developments in that journey and negative developments in that journey. But as a result, one, we communicate to the whole company, you're a huge part of this journey, just like everyone else here, and that you have significant things to contribute to it. And we trust you with this information that's sometimes difficult. And what we really want here is we all want us all to work towards this very clear goal of product market fit. And I'm not going to transform that or turn it into something more localized for you, right? Like I'm not going to go over working towards product market fit. And what I really want Emily on my team to do is XYZ. I'm not going to do that. I'm basically going to go to Emily and say, hey, we're working towards product market fit. And here's how we'll know we get there. And here's all the data that's available. Please figure out what you think makes sense in your role to help the whole team get towards product market fit. And so I think Subscript is more of a collective brain rather than a traditional organizations where maybe just me and Michelle would know all the things and then everyone else would get processed information. Here, everyone's exposed to all the decisions being made across the organization and they can contribute wherever they feel like they have useful things to contribute. Before we get into how you're executing on it, I'm interested to talk a little bit about what Maybe someone's gut instinct or immediate reaction would be when they hear remote and async. And I think, you know, you could probably cluster it into a few areas, but one would be so much of working at a company and specifically a startup is about these deep relationships that you have with coworkers and friendships that you develop with coworkers. And what happens to that? in this context? And do you ultimately sort of just not think that it matters or you're able to nurture that thing in the way that you're building the company? If you were to take our Slack and the conversations that happen in that Slack, many of them asynchronously and that responses come a few hours later kind of thing. 
I don't think you would feel like, oh, this company culture is different than the culture of a company that's all in person. The emojis would feel natural. And then you would feel like the banter that exists in channels like our food channel or like our parents channel. There's quite a lot of parents at Subscript. Not shockingly, this type of approach appeals to parents quite a bit where they can have actual control over their schedule. And then when we do our monthly, we call it live time for an hour, an hour and a half, and we do like get to know each other activities or board games or stuff like that, it feels just like any other company. It does not feel stiff or awkward in any way. On top of that, a couple of other things that we do are sometimes these live sessions involve quote unquote homework. And the homework is like you spend an hour with a randomly assigned teammate in the company. We did this one interview of favorite toys from your childhood. And we had like all these pictures of toys and stuff or places that you lived when you were growing up. We get to know each other in all these deeper levels. And then finally, we also do in-person offsites. We're still trying to figure out what the right cadence is given COVID. Our goal is three or four a year. And we spend a whole week together where we just bring everyone together to the same place. And we do mix of the usual offsite stuff like working together, brainstorming together, culture norms together, having fun together, all that stuff. So we have like a bunch of different ways that we fill that hole of being close to your teammates. And I feel like most people feel quite fulfilled around that. I do too. And Michelle is like an extremely social person and she feels quite fulfilled around that. So I feel quite good about this. I feel like it works really well. What are your observations in terms of the key downsides to this methodology thus far or sort of the explicit trade-offs that you've been willing to make? Yeah, I think maybe the biggest thing is at an extreme, if you're the kind of person who just has to be in an office every day surrounded by your coworkers in order to feel excited, motivated, whatever, then this doesn't work for you. The social part is totally there, but it's not there every hour of every day. You're not going to have lunch with your coworkers. So if that is really important to you, then this doesn't work. But I generally have this belief that hiring is always segmentation exercise, just like Finding a market for your product is a segmentation exercise. But what's even nicer about hiring is that you can really micro-segment. You basically can find a very small segment because you're not looking for a big TAM when you're hiring. You're looking for a very tiny few people, but you just need there to be overlap between the people you need and the people who are interested in the product you're offering, where the product you're offering is the culture that they all work in. And I feel like basically this gives us very specific segmentation. We hire people who really care about managing their own schedule, who are very good at motivating themselves, who are very comfortable making their own decisions and ambiguity, who are very good at communicating in a written asynchronous way or communicating asynchronously via video and who have the type of skill sets that we're looking for. And the things we don't need is we don't need anyone who lives in San Francisco or is willing to move to San Francisco. We don't need someone who has to be in an office from nine to five or whatever. We don't need someone who has to wake up for a all hands at a particular time. We don't need any of those things. So basically, we picked our segment. And it's both a positive and a negative, I guess, that Negative is that we can't hire people out of that segment, but I think that's mostly just a positive in that we have a very specific type of person who really loves Subscript. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop, let's talk about how you would describe the component parts 
or the operating stack or rituals to make this happen? A lot of this also came out of learnings from my last company. So we eventually developed a pretty good documentation culture at Freckle, but we didn't have one on day zero. At Subscript, we had one on day zero. Everything gets documented at Subscript. And we try to make sure that all the logic of every decision we make is reflected in our collective wiki. Everything, even the smallest things, right? And there's a preserved record of the discussion that was around in it because there wasn't a meeting where people discussed what we should do. There's a written record with comments and evolution of thought that all gets written. And so the written culture is a huge part and I think should be a part, whether you're synchronous or asynchronous, in my view. This becomes in year six of Freckle, there were so many things that we basically ended up relitigating that we had figured out like three years ago because it's a lot of different teammates and you forget what you decided. You forget why you decided you're asking the same questions again. It's so good to have a good documentation culture early. So we did that on day zero, but also it's for us, it's not even optional in that all discussions are in writing. And the one thing we did also differently is like most companies, I forgot we use a lot of Google Docs. We don't use that here. It's for like a reason that sounds trivial, but it's really not. And the reason is that in Google, you can create a doc and you can share it with someone that doesn't live in any folder or hierarchy. And that means a lot of things basically go into the ether and you will never find it again. There's lots of products you can use. Uh, we use Notion. Last time we used Confluence, both are great. But basically the main thing that they do is they enforce a hierarchy. And so you can always find things easily. And that's such an important thing about the documentation heavy culture. The other big, big lesson that plays a really big factor in this is like how to do really good goal setting. So most companies, I think, go through many iterations of goal setting. And it's interesting, OKRs are a tool that are very simple sounding, but actually executing on them can be quite hard and nuanced because there's all sorts of little things about how you frame your O's, how you frame your KRs and like how outcome-based you are versus how process-based you are. All these things matter a lot. I also think that this is another one of those things where there's a lot of right answers, but you have to find what's right for you. And mostly it just takes experience to do that. So luckily I have the entire experience of Freckle to draw upon here. And so at this point, I have like a pretty strong philosophy on OKRs. And so that philosophy is sort of infused across how we set the context for what we're doing. So a part of our operating cadence is we have monthly OKRs. So right now working through our June OKRs, they're very simple, usually only one or sometimes two objectives. And then like two to three KRs per objective, because focus is really, really important. So we're focused on two things in June. And of those two things, every week, usually me, but sometimes other members of the team will do a context setting video for that week. So this is something that goes out every Sunday night PST, so Monday morning for a bunch of people who start in Asia. This video essentially is like, here's what our goals are, here's our KRs, here's where we are on those KRs roughly right now. And then we go down to, here's like a set of ideas for this week that can probably help us move towards those KRs. So everyone gets this level of context, right? The set of ideas isn't do X, Y, Z. It's more like problems A, B, or C are the types of things that are standing in our way. And then occasionally, if there's like a really big project, that'll be like making progress on these projects will probably help. So that's five, six lines of context in bulleted format. And then... The last part of this weekly video is reflections from the previous week. So everyone collects all the reflections at the end of each week in the doc from 
that week. And then in the video, we pick a few of the reflections that it makes most sense for everyone to have context on. So these reflections can be anything from like an awesome win that we had that is just a great thing to celebrate together. Or it can be like someone saying, I'm really drowning in notifications, right? Which is a problem that almost everyone has. And then using that as a prompt for a more a more in-depth discussion that obviously also happens asynchronously on how should we think about managing notification overload. And that video is like maybe 15-ish minutes and that's our replacement for all hands. It's weekly, it's short, people comment on it and people comment on the doc. And so there's robust discussion on it. It's just, in my view, a significantly more powerful thing than an all hands because you can do it way more frequently, which I think is quite important. All hands are very important in my view and you can keep it much shorter and you can get really good back and forth on it. So there's a lot to dig in from what you just shared. Maybe we could go back to the documentation culture. I'd be curious to learn more about what is the hierarchy in terms of how you organize this information. I think the number one challenge is always you have hundreds and hundreds of documents or thousands over time. How does someone find something? How do things get sorted? And so I'm interested, what have you figured out or how have you designed this, I guess in this case, very pragmatically, your notion If I were to go in, what would I see? How's it organized? And maybe how did you land on that? Yeah. So there's a few main sections. The first one is overall company level. And here, generally, there's not much information sort of like, what's our company address and stuff like that. But the main functional sections are there's the goals and planning, which I just talked about. That's what we use to actually do our all hands for the for the week or our OKRs for the month. Almost all these sections have like a discussions area where you can dump any doc you want in there that pertains to that area. So if you were having a discussion on is our OKR process working and in what way should we iterate on it, it'll go in that discussion section. And then there's product and design. That one also has a RFCs section, which is requests for comments. And there's a lot of those. And we specifically name all of these things requests for comments. I really like it because it's very explicitly says this is not decisions or something of that sort. This is a place where I'm looking for input from other people. And in product, we also have things like discovery interviews or feature requests. And then within there is one of my favorite things, which is what we call our journal of product market fit. So in that journal, there's essentially like entries that are at a very high level. What is working towards our product market fit and what are the things that we need to think through? And it's very fun to read because basically we started doing this in like month two of the company. And some of the other early discussions in there are called things like lighthouse customer problems and solutions or like for whom are we building things like that right so like very high level what should we think about and then more recent discussions are more like our core buyer which is the finance leaders and other stakeholders and how they work together and what does that mean for our journey and product market fit so this journal has been like one of the coolest things because you can watch our thinking and our business evolve and there's usually like four or five entries a month in here so there's quite a bit now in fact june has six entries already we're getting a lot of really good hard thinking done and then the next high level section is engineering a lot of discussions happen here so tons and tons of rfcs every big or small engineering decision that gets made that's not at the level of a code review happens in notion so if something is like a comment someone left in my code review recently is like i used a lot of string literals where i should be using constants and that was like a mistake i made because i didn't realize that was all set up so that happens not here but 
for anything that's sort of like, how should our NetSuite integration work? Because NetSuite is quite hard to integrate with. That would show up in the discussions on the engineering section. Then the go-to-market section, mostly just discussions, but also a lot of any document that we share with a customer, tools that we're thinking about using. If we have goals for that functional area, we'll go there and like how we thought about those goals. So if we're ever like, why was our May goal X? You know exactly where in the hierarchy could go to see exactly what the main goal was and why it was that and how we did against it. And this is history that will be here forever, right? Six years hence or 10 years hence, we'll be able to see, oh, in May 2022, if you are curious, what things look like. Then there's a client success section. And here there's everything from a lot of how to's to like more RFCs, notes from specific customer calls, stuff like that. That all goes here as well. So we actually do keep our running log of how specific customer relationships are going in here. We have a section on culture and another one on team. So on the team one, it's more about like hiring and we have a sort of subscript hiring guide and this continues to get improved. So every time someone makes a hire at subscript, we say like, oh, can you go back and add things you've learned in the process back to the hiring guide. So we like do a lot of just continuous iteration on all of these things. Explicit in there is our compensation philosophy. So no one is ever wondering how their compensation came about. There's a very explicit philosophy that you can read and it's right in there. Our buddy program documentation is in there. On the culture side, there's things like our core principles and what we call our guide to being a stellar subby and things like that. And then There's like a general operations and a security section and stuff like that. And so when you say many of these top level sections have lots of areas that discussions are happening, what does that actually look like? Is that just people commenting back and forth on a document that somebody puts together or what is the discussion format? Yeah, the way that'll typically happen is say... Emily, who runs client success, is thinking about changing the process a little bit for how client success starts to become involved in a customer relationship during the sales and the data setup phase. And so what she might do is have a little bit of background on why she's thinking about this and maybe a little bit of additional reading, maybe like things she found on the first round review, of course, or things like that. And that goes into here's some interesting reading on it and then how things are currently working, what's not working about it, and then what she thinks might work a little better. And very much every discussion is framed as, here's some ideas I have, I would love to hear opinions. Nothing is, here's a decision I've made. It's, here's some ideas I have. To be clear, Emily's the decision maker on this and no one else gets to make the decision. And so we're like really big on each person being directly responsible individual for a particular idea or a task. So it's still one person, but it starts out with, I'm looking for input from others on this. And then in that doc, she might specifically tag the people who need to work with her on this. And those people then, the expectation is within the next day or so, they'll have a chance to go back in there and actually leave comments on the things they agree with, the things they don't agree with. And then often what people will do is add a section at the bottom, write their name and say like, here's some other thoughts I have and here's a slightly different idea I have on how we could do this. And then from there, the discussion will naturally evolve as it might in any discussion, except it'll be like multi-threaded and all asynchronous. So you get, in my view, a much richer discussion and a much more 
clear communication because if you misread something, you can ask more questions. And then if other people also misread it, then they can also see the explanation and you have a chance to like reread things. And then from there, like at some point, all discussions tend to converge into some clear solution or next step. And that's where Emily, in this case, would as a directly responsible individual, the DRI on this, I think we're going to do X, Y, Z. And implicit in there is she's now got discussion and at least enough buy-in from the other people who need to be involved in this, that that becomes the decision. And now that's sort of preserved forever. And what's really cool is that, let's say a new client success person joins and they're like, well, why do we do it this way? You can just be like, oh, check out this doc. And if you have new ideas on it, just create a new section at the top or create a new doc, reference this one, and then we can continue iterating on it. And so you're never relitigating decisions because you can just see everything that was involved and all the considerations that went into it rather than just making people repeat themselves. So why do you think this sort of methodology tends to be fairly atypical? Where if you look at the average scaling business, it tends to be meeting-centric. It tends to be more verbal or real-time versus async. I think it's because it's easier. So if I'm in an office with a bunch of people, this is sort of like the much vaunted run-in and like serendipitous conversation that different people can have kind of thing. If I'm in an office and I run into people and then we have this conversation or maybe we have it over lunch or whatever, yes, you get the serendipity, but you've also now created a bunch of knowledge between the two of you that no one else is privy to. And maybe some version of it gets documented, but likely what's going to happen is maybe you'll change your behavior in some way and start doing things a slightly different way. Or maybe you'll process the information, decide something, and then let everyone know what you decided, but now they don't have enough of the context. And so maybe an explicit downside of Subscript's culture is like we're missing the random serendipitous interaction. But I guess from a very empirical level, I honestly have not noticed the downside of it. It seems fine. What we've gained, though, is this incredible, written, permanent, well-documented technology that has made so many things so much easier. So I wanted to loop back to your goal-setting process. And I'm interested, given this orientation around extreme autonomy, can you walk us through the process by which you mentioned you have one or two objectives with one or two KRs that you're focused on on a monthly basis? And then how does that map to what a software engineer or a data engineer or a product designer is actually doing on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis throughout the month? So this is a real example for us would be, we want to make sure that every customer, every time they log into Subscript can 100% trust everything that they see. There's never a questioning the data and that has a lot of things encapsulated in it, but everything should work every single time. And that's that's the bar that we hold ourselves to, right? That was one of the objectives actually in last month that we want to work closer to getting to that bar. And within that, the KR, so as a bar, the way that came to be was actually based on a bunch of discussions in the journal Product Market Fit, where we sort of evaluated what's working and what's not working in April and before. And one of the conclusions that a lot of those documents pointed to was that this is a place where we need to improve. And the first thing I'll usually do is a few days before the end of the month, I'll post, here's the objective that we're thinking about for the next month. And so that's open for comment. And because we've already had all these other discussions that have led to that objective, usually in the journal of product market fit, everyone is already aligned around it. 
most of the time, everyone agrees that that's the obvious objective. So that's awesome. And then for the specific KRs, usually that's a little bit more of a collaborative effort. And so I'll ask a couple of people who might really have good ideas on how to make sure that we're measuring this properly. And then there'll be other folks who'll have other ideas. So there'll be a little bit of back and forth, but we're not trying to turn the KR generation into a super intensive process. So we essentially pick KRs that seem pretty good and just roll with it. The point really, in my view of OKRs, is to get everyone very aligned on what we're all working on and everyone directionally moving towards what is a good level of the thing that we're trying to accomplish, right? And so we can get that without trying to be perfect on the KRs. So we have that. And then on the weekly videos, Essentially, we talk a little bit about, for example, if I look at one of the May weekly videos, there was three or four things in that one. One is, this is towards the end of May. We had a lot of things already in progress, so there was a little less to talk about. So it was like uh, making progress on all the things that have a data integrity label on GitHub is what a engineer might end up focusing on. And then so then the question is like, well, how does that label get there? And it essentially gets there by because everyone is aligned on this is the goal that we have. And then based on that goal, people have ideas of projects. So that shows up in either an engineering RFC or a product RFC of like, oh, here's ways we could improve data integrity. And then some of those, if they really speak to an engineer, for example, so actually a really good example example on exactly this point is there's a very cool idea that one of our principal engineers on had on how we can make our data integrity significantly better by adding this new kind of data checking framework, essentially. And he wrote up an RFC, three or four other engineers commented on it, refined it, refined it, got input from the data team, which added more ideas to it. And then on becomes the DRI for this project. He came up with it. He is a DRI for it. It's aligned to our goals. And then he created all the stuff in GitHub. He added the labels to it. And then at this point, I think three or four different engineers have picked up and decided to work on tickets related to that specific project. That's a little bit of how the pipeline here might work. Super autonomy focused. Everyone gets to make their own decisions. Everyone's choosing what to work on, but everyone has more than enough context to help them make the right decision. Have you changed this process since starting the company or did you set out with this overall, the way in which goals and product planning and execution kind of fit together? So the process has evolved a little bit, but the major contours of it have remained roughly the same. The ways that it's evolved a little bit is that in the beginning, I was not quite as good at achieving the thing I wanted, which is I want this to be a fully autonomous culture where the process I described to you, where on came up with like a really cool idea that helps us accomplish our goal, which there's no way I would have ever figured that out. But this is sort of like the collective subscript brain going so much further than any one person can. And that is what we wanted. But in the beginning, it was a little bit harder. I think partly it was like when folks are relatively newer at Subscript, they have a little less context of the history of all the things. And also it can be a little bit of a transition to like start operating in this way. It's like incredibly freeing once they've made that transition. But at first it can feel a little uncomfortable. What do you mean I'm not assigned a ticket? What do you mean I can just do anything. That, that can be hard when you've spent a decade or two doing the opposite. So there's a bit of that. But I think what I've really focused on for myself is each time someone doesn't know what to work on, or each time someone works on something that is like clearly not aligned, 
I asked myself, what is the bug in the system that I should go fix? I'm an engineer. This is how I think. Everything that needs fixing is a bug. And so like, what's the bug in the system? And the bug in the system is always something related to what I did to set context. So this comes back to my beliefs around micromanagement. I think anytime you're telling someone what to do, you're not actually solving the bug. You're like, I don't know, doing really bad patch and taking on more tech debt or culture debt or whatever. Instead, you have to think about like, what are the system level things I should do differently so that that bad decision or misaligned decision doesn't happen. I was hoping you could expand on this idea that micromanagement is bad or a bug in the system in maybe a little bit more detail and we could get more of your thinking on the topic. Yeah, I tend to speak in a bit of an extreme way on this one. And the reason I do it is not because I think that the topic is actually black and white or always one way, but mostly because I think almost everyone makes the same mistake in one direction. And so I find it helpful to speak very forcefully in the other direction. So the mistake that everyone makes, and I made for much of my career managing people, is doing a bit too much telling them what to do. And sometimes that's like very specific telling them what to do. Like sometimes it's, I don't know, anyone who's ever worked at a consulting firm in Messen Bank will tell you there's a lot of like telling me what to do in that highlight this cell, this color, and like italicize this type of thing. There's like that level of telling them what to do. But then there's more things that seem not as offensive, but are still, in my view, quite micromanagey. So an example could be, let's say you're a startup CEO and a salesperson was working on a deal and they're taking a particular approach to like how to answer a particular set of questions from the customer over email. A lot of Startup CEOs who have done the selling before might be like very tempted to say, like, no, no, here's how you should answer this. Or like, oh, you shouldn't use those words and use these words instead. Or here's something that I would do differently. My recommendation to everyone is to do less. Even if you think someone's making a mistake, just let them for two reasons. The first one is a lot of the time you think that they're making a mistake, they're actually not. And what you have is not the correct answer. What you have is just an opinion. And so by not forcing your opinion upon them, you're essentially, one, potentially getting a better answer. You just happen to be wrong. I don't know. I, as CEO, am wrong very, very often. And I don't think that's unique to me as a startup founder. And then the second reason is even if you are right, there's a question of how right you are, because there's a cost to telling someone what to do. You've sort of like squashed their creativity a little bit. You've squashed their ownership a little bit of the thing that they're working on. And you were setting this pattern of if I don't do things Siddharth's way, then that means that he's going to think less of me. And so I better just like run all my decisions by Siddharth. And that is the worst possible outcome that you could imagine. Now, you're basically in a collective company brain, you've shut off a node. So you better be like that much more right to like incur that level of cost if you're going to do it. And then the last part is even if the decision is just super freaking wrong, but is reversible, or at least is like a thing that has a cost that you can bear, you're best off just bearing it and then using it as a way to like help teach that person. Because in an ideal world, you don't want to be the person who's orchestrating what each person is doing. You want a world where each part of your company, everyone can make decisions that are 
correct, that are great, and that are culturally consistent, that are consistent with your goals, and so on. And so you want to get everyone to a point where they're able to do that. And the way to do that isn't to like shut off an experiment that they're doing in their way of doing it and replacing it with how you would do it. It's to let them run that experiment, let them try it their way, and then to like close the loop on, did it work? Why did it work? Why did it not work? And then help them. If you had the right answer and you just had the totally right context, then going back and saying, okay, well, here's some things that I would have thought about differently in that situation. And I don't know if that would have resulted in the right answer, but it maybe is more likely to, or maybe it would have been more successful. And I am certainly not perfect at this. I am sure my team would tell you, but I really try quite hard. And there's been like cases where I caught myself writing a message and mid-message going, wait, 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 I should not be saying this. I should not be saying anything. I should just keep my mouth shut. And then I instead just set myself a reminder for like two weeks later to check back in and see how things are. And I found so many times that the thing that I thought there was a thing someone was doing and I was like, that is definitely the wrong way to do it. But I keep my mouth shut and then come back two weeks later. I'm like, huh, that was like totally the right way to do it and potentially better than my way. And then the last thing you may find that the thing that you thought could have been better, they also totally think they could have been better, but maybe they have like a whole bunch of ideas on how they're going to do it better next time. I have definitely had that experience many times before. And it has made me go from, oh man, person X did not do such a great job on thing Y to like, huh, person X is really, really thoughtful and totally going to do better and better work in every subsequent project. Are there any specific areas that you are willing to micromanage? For me, the thought exercise comes to mind is that if you're at an offsite and the structure is burning down, you might tell someone the exit is over there, you should go there, as opposed to sort of leaving it into some open-ended exploration of what you should be doing given the buildings burning down. So with that as a mental model, are there things you found that you actually are very, very small areas that you tend to be more prescriptive or more willing to micromanage or it's full stop, you won't do it? Oftentimes, I find that the way people end up telling others what to do is like telling them what to do that they already know, or they have already considered the thing that you think is the right answer. They have additional information. They're acting on that additional information. And here you are making them either go, all right, well, you're the boss, so I will do what you say, which is terrible. Now that you've lost that extra information that they have, that would have made a better decision. Or making them explain to you and teach you about how they have this extra information and making themselves defend a totally correct decision to you. And I feel like that's the more common situation. So the way I think of it is if I'm going to be saying something like that, like the exit is over there, I better have more information than the other person. I better not be doing it just to leave myself feeling like I was useful today. And this is especially true when you're a founder and you have generally senior people around you. Chances are that they're functionally more of an expert at their thing. Everyone who works for me is better at their thing than I am at their thing. And so if I'm telling Phil, our marketer, oh, I hear people advertise on Google. Phil has heard of Google. He knows that you can pay them money to advertise there. He has almost certainly considered it, right? And that's the level of micromanagement that I think is incredibly common. I also think, not that any VCs want advice from me, but I do find VCs do this fairly often where you'll be like in a board and the VCs will be like, have we considered buying leads on social? Or like, I think we need to close more bigger deals. 
It's just like, oh my God, this is the least useful comment in the universe. And now I have to explain myself of all the things we try and consider. So before we end by talking about the talent and talent evaluation component, are there any other parts of the system that you've built, the rituals that happen on a weekly, monthly, or quarterly cadence that power the way that you work that we haven't yet talked about that are important for people to know? The most important thing that we haven't talked about yet is how we use feedback to kind of close the loop on a lot of things. So we have a very ritualized method of feedback, which is it happens every four weeks. We're about to start standardizing what day that happens for the whole company, because to us, that's part of culture. So that's where Michelle and I get to make a call. And what we also template sort of what the format is. It's just a format that I'm sure everyone's heard of, the start, stop, continue, although no one ever uses the stop. So it's really start and continue. And that feedback goes bi-directionally. So both from the employee to their champion and the other way around every four weeks. And this is the opportunity to make up for what we gave away in the no micromanaging thing. We gave up the idea that you can tell people what to do. But in this, we gain back the idea that you help people improve and that thereby make better decisions in the future and reflect. And that means that you will never have to tell them what to do. They will just get better and better. How did you land on this feedback model? This is something I actually did at Freckle as well. There, actually, we had a slightly different format. We called it glows and grows, but it ultimately ends up being the same thing. I think the actual words don't seem to matter so much here. It ends up looking pretty similar. And there, we also did it, I think we did every six weeks there. Because we're not doing one-on-ones at Subscript, it's helpful to have it slightly more frequently. And sometimes there's just like not that much to say and you end up repeating yourself a little bit. And that's okay. Repetition is great for this type of thing. The other part of this feedback model that I am a big proponent of is, I think it's easy to say, Everyone should give each other feedback, but without a dedicated forum, feedback always feels a little more offensive. It's sort of like, why did you go out of your way to tell me this thing that I'm not doing perfectly? It like feels a little offensive, but here in this template, there's like a blank space. You're supposed to put the thing that the other person can improve. It's sort of like annual reviews or whatever, but obviously like waiting a whole year to do that type of thing at a startup is not such a great idea. So every four weeks turns out to be, in my view, really good. So I wanted to end our time by talking more about the people part of the equation. And so maybe a place to start would be, given the model that you're executing on, what is required in the talent that you're bringing in? And in what ways would you say an effective employee at Subscript might be similar or different to an effective employee at Freckle? A lot of the ways are, of course, similar because ultimately cultures often end up being reflections of their founders and I was founder in both. I think the ways that are different because of specifically our async, more autonomous approach is we need people who are more writing oriented at Subscript. And so that's a huge part of our interview process, for example, in every single role. We don't have a very long interview process, but one of the steps is always involving writing for an engineer that would be writing about a pretend feature that they're working on and collaborating with a pretend colleague on that feature for a 
designer. It's a little bit of a back and forth discussion on stuff that they've worked on in the past, even for sales employees and data team, everyone does a writing exercise as part of their interview. And then the other thing for autonomy that's really helpful is having ambiguous parts of our interview process. So every step, we try to make it at least a little bit ambiguous. And what we're looking to see is how people ask questions, how people make decisions on the ambiguous parts. What is their ability to infer context based on all the other things that are talked about? And that helps us gain confidence in their ability to make decisions on their own. Siddharth, you just mentioned this a little bit, but maybe we could zoom out and you could walk us through what the current interview process that you've developed is end-to-end and maybe why you've architected it in this way. For sure. I'll give an example of our engineering interview process. There's only three steps, but it's pretty similar for every role. The first thing that we start with is we set context of like how we work and how our interview process will go because we want to make sure hiring is a segmentation exercise and it's actually a non-trivial number of people who say, I'm, I'm sorry, actually this async thing is not for me or this like not an office thing is not for me, which is great. That's what you want. You want to filter out the folks who are ultimately not going to actually be a fit for working in your culture. From there, the first step becomes a technical exercise. It's a toy project. We just took some open source project and you kind of enhance it a little bit. But the critical thing is that you first do a little bit of planning ahead of doing the changes to it and you communicate your planning and then you make your changes live while on video. So you record yourself doing it and we kind of get to see how you think and you talk through the decisions that you're making. And we learn so much. Like there's so many signals coming through on this thing. The first is like, how do you think about design? So not just hacking away, but also like, how do you think about slightly higher level decisions, which is important in an autonomous environment. And we find even more junior candidates can have really good thoughts on this stuff. The bar is slightly different for junior candidates, but we still are looking for the same types of skills and characteristics. Then when we get to watch you actually write code, there's a lot of variance and ability there. And so we get to like find people who are actually able to write code that is clean and thoughtful and aren't creating a bunch of debt or holes or when they are, they like explicitly call it out, stuff like that. So we learn a lot that way. And then the communication throughout, we learn a lot about like, how did you communicate your design decisions? How did you communicate while you were working through your decisions while you were programming? So that's step one and probably gives us the most signal in the process. And then for step two, you take the thing that you worked on and you expand the documentation around it. So here, the thing we're looking for is what is the user experience of working with this person? If you're like more backend focused, your first project will have been backend. If you're more frontend, it'll be that. And you essentially work with your counterpart. And your job is to create documentation that will help the person working on the other half of this feature know what to do and how to do it. And so that's where a lot of ambiguity comes in as well, because we're not like, you know, include these sections or whatever. We're basically just saying, help the other person work with you. And so you get this sense of how do they communicate? How thoughtful are they? How deep do they go on certain things? 
How much do they anticipate your needs as the pretend colleague? And this gives you tons of signal of like, what is it actually going to be like to work with this person? How good a teammate are they going to be? Super high signals here as well. And we've definitely had folks who absolutely were like one of the best on step one, but one of the worst fits on step two. That makes the decision fairly clear. And then step three is actually a sync chat with Michelle. And really what we're doing here is as much trying to make sure you know what you're getting into, making sure that you are in our segment and just trying to absolutely make sure that you are into this. And we haven't, there's very few people we've hired who like it turns out we're not into it. So that's really good. We have hired folks in the past who turned out not to be a fit for it, even though they were into it. Different story, but that works pretty well too. With sort of all of that as background, what does this ultimately mean for a week in the life of Siddharth? And what does that look like in terms of what are filling up your days? And maybe after you explain that, you can compare and contrast that with what did a week look like when you were the CEO of Freckle? It's shockingly different, actually, which is kind of surprising because at Freckle, it was a lot of meetings, obviously, because that's how people do things. And most CEOs are in a lot of meetings. They're like joining the go-to-market setup meeting and they're doing their all hands and maybe doing a prep meeting with all hands and the one-on-ones and so on. So a lot of meetings. And then there was a lot more of me getting down into the nitty gritty of the things people were working on, especially in the earlier days and trying to be helpful or more often the person pointing at the fire exit when people are already going through it. That ended up being me quite often. And so like I was spending so many cycles doing that. At Subscript, it's quite different. I have a lot fewer meetings. I have meetings with external folks. So I have meetings with customers and other people who I'm doing discovery with, stuff like that. But there's zero internal meetings. So that generally means a typical day I have between zero and two meetings, which is amazing. The rest of the time, a lot of the meeting stuff is replaced a bit by notifications on Notion and Slack and email. So there's the places where everyone goes for notifications. There's Notion and Slack specifically, no matter what you do on the team, you're checking those two. And then there's a bunch of like functional specific ones, GitHub, Figma for designers. There's Asana for customer facing teams. There's HubSpot for sales and marketing teams. But as CEO and as the person who was doing each of those roles first, I get a bunch of notifications from those too. So there's a bit of like conversation where mostly I'm just doing more context adding where people are like, oh, I don't know why this decision was made. Siddharth, do you know? And I'll be like, oh yeah, check the stock out. A lot of that type of stuff. A lot of it is like trying to reaffirm culture where people will be like, hey, how do we feel about people paying by Method X? And I'll be like, you decide. So there's a lot of like me saying, you figure it out and not letting people tell me to tell them what to do. So there's a bunch of that. And then there's a lot of deep thinking time, which is the greatest. So I do a lot of writing either for myself as I'm processing or for the team as I have getting closer to a thing which I think would be really helpful for a lot of people to give input on. So that aforementioned journal of product market fit, I end up writing a lot of entries in there. I end up writing a lot of thoughts in a bunch of different areas. And mostly like my number one job is to find amazing product market fit. So I think about what will help us get there. I do a lot of thinking about our goals, about our weekly planning. Those are the highest leverage activities I do, right? Like thinking hard about our goals and aligning everyone on those. When we're hiring, often if it's like someone who's going to report to me, I've done a, spent a lot of time doing that. But when we're not hiring, then I will also end up doing a little bit of stuff that I just enjoy doing. So I really love programming. So I just go pick up a ticket and work on it. And that has been quite delightful as well. 
Maybe to end, as you think about this model, this culture, this way of behaving and operating that you're working on at Subscript, what are the things you're still wrestling with or don't know what the right way to do something is? A couple of things that I think we talked a bit about that I haven't quite figured out yet is how do you apply our beliefs on autonomy and not micromanaging to more junior members? I think the principles will still apply, but the specifics may vary a little bit more. So there's a bit of thinking to be done around that and figuring out to be done around that. We talked a bit about there are no random serendipitous encounters in a remote world. We're also thinking about what is the right level of in-person together time, especially when it's so hard in a COVID world for people to travel. So we're still thinking about that. And mine and Michelle's inclination is for more, but there's like real operational limitations that we have to figure out. And then there's stuff like taking cultural things that Michelle and I are very good at because we developed the culture and making sure that that extends to the whole team because we want almost everything to be very autonomous and people making their own decisions. But like some things are really hard to provide contextual guidance on. For example, the hiring bar is a really hard one, right? Like in lots of big successful companies, there's places where CEOs famously interviewed every employee until a thousand people. I don't think that's the right approach, but I understand the problem they were trying to solve, which is it's a hard thing to like suffuse your culture with. And so you have to find good ways to do that. And we're thinking about that as well. Awesome. Great place to end. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. This was one of my favorite conversations. This was really, really great. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for the great questions.